Before we start the episode, we want to take a moment to thank you for listening to LoveLink. If you're a fan of the show, it means a lot to us. To help support our podcast, we'd love it if you could take a moment to write a review in Apple Podcasts. It seems small, but it's so helpful in getting more listeners so we can keep the show going. Go to the LoveLink homepage in iTunes or the podcast app and leave us a review. Thanks so much, and we hope you enjoy the episode. It's not that any parent is causing a kid to kill themselves, but you can create an environment at home that's full of presence, attunement, resonance, and trust. And a trust that life will be okay. And that it's about our relationships with each other and really doing things together for the greater good rather than worrying about any individual accomplishment. Welcome to Lovelink, your guide to relationships in all forms. We're your hosts, Sina Simon and Simone Humphrey. Our guest today is an expert on parenting in the brain. He has written six books on parenting, including New York Times bestsellers Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain, The Whole Brain Child, 12 Revolutionary Strategies to Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind, and No Drama Discipline, The Whole Brain Way to Calm the Chaos and Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind. He is a professor at the UCLA School of Medicine, the co-founder of Mindfulness Awareness Research Center, and has a psychotherapy practice where he treats children, adults, and families. We're so excited to pick his brain on why attunement is so important in parenting, what presence looks like with a child, and why adolescents get such a bad rep. Welcome Dr. Dan Siegel. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. You're welcome. And uh, we were wondering what made you get into parenting um, as a topic that you wanted to help people with? Well, let's see. I think the first thing that wanted me to get into parenting was the challenging experiences I had being parented as a kid. and that led me to pediatrics. And then when I switched to psychiatry and then to child and adolescent psychiatry, it was clear that, you know, what parents did made a huge difference. Uh, and so that was a second reason. And then a third reason was I became a researcher in parent-child relationships called attachment research. And um, then it was really clear that uh, the parental's uh, experience of presence or or their self-understanding, self-awareness was actually the best predictor of how kids did. So then it became a really exciting moment to uh, start focusing on parents increasing their self-understanding. And then I guess the next thing was just, it seemed like the larger issue was that parents were raising kids to be the next generation of leaders and the world is in such dire straits that in a way it's like working with educators you know who are helping sculpt the minds of the future parents are the first teachers so then that was another reason to 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 do that yeah 
Can you explain what presence is in the in the kind of realm of your research, what presence is for parents and how that affects children? Yeah. So the word presence, of course, in everyday language means, you know, showing up and being in a receptive, open, accepting state of mind. So that's for anyone. That's what, you know, I could feel their presence or they were, you know, they were really present. Um, from an attachment point of view, what the research is so interesting is it shows that parents who show up who are able to have this receptive state have children who develop in an optimal way uh, and so uh, the formal term for that is they develop secure attachment but you can see the various forms of non-secure attachment as ways the parents haven't really been present for their kids in very specific ways so you know as a researcher it was very interesting to learn that as a clinician, it was very exciting to ask people about their experience of their parents being present or not. And then as an educator, it was a, it was a, a direct root of a skill you could actually teach because you don't just have presence or not. It's actually a teachable skill. So then I just became kind of obsessed with, you know, what is presence and what does it really mean to show up in a relationship, not just for parenting, but for friendships, for romance, for whatever, and it turns out the same principles apply, even though it's obviously in different kinds of settings. Hmm. So tell us a little bit more about how you help people cultivate presence, because you're saying it's actually a skill that can be learned, uh, yeah. something parents can train themselves in. How do you, how do you help parents do that? Well, the, the one thing to start with is, um, just in terms of how the mind functions, you know, you have two basic things to start with. You have the experience of energy flow that's like a pure flow that you can think of it like a hose that lets water go through it, like a conduit. Um, or you can take that water and freeze it into, you know, ice cubes and then construct something. It's still water that you're constructing with, but you're building like an igloo or building a, a statue. So the mind has both conduition, you know, just pure flow, and it has construction. And the way the mind works uh, is that the more you learn, the more you start filtering energy flow through your expectations and beliefs and memory. And so what you actually take from the sensory flow of energy, as you translate that into perception, you're already constructing what you perceive. So, you know, not to mean any offense, but there's a phrase that I like to use, there's no such thing as immaculate perception, <laughs> you know? And so you, uh, I used to work with John O'Donohue, who was an Irish Catholic priest, and I asked John, is that offensive to you? He goes, no, it's hilarious, you know? <laughs> like there's no immaculate perception, uh, conception. So, so perception and conception, talking, that kind of conceiving, um, thinking and coming up with ideas, it's those constructive processes that get in the way of presence. So that if a parent, you know, wants to make sure their little boy is a football player, well, let's say this little boy is more like internally focused and very creative in the way that, that they're thinking about things. And maybe that little boy doesn't even think he's a boy. Maybe he has more gender identity, it's more fluid, or maybe it's feminine. You know, to be present for that young child means letting go of your expectations he's going to be a football player or even that he's going to be a he. 
and just really showing up for who that child is emerging as being so your child feels seen and understood and accepted you know so there you can see where someone not being present would manifest as putting your bias onto your child and then the child would have a lot of problems because who they actually were wasn't consistent with how you were seeing them because you know sight is a perception so we construct perception and it's that uh, process of presence that allows you to get beneath the construction of perceiving and actually get more directly to sensing and sensing is about as pure as you get in terms of feeling the flow of energy before it's constructed into some what I call you know top-down or you know filtered way of perceiving things yeah Does that make sense it makes a lot of sense yeah. and it makes me think about I mean a similar word but maybe slightly different meaning of, of the idea of attunement, being attuned, really kind of paying attention to the person in front of you, which is very difficult. I mean, we, we recently both have children and it's, it's, there's a moment, at least that I had, where I had to recognize this is a separate person. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, yes, they're a ba that she was a baby. And so knowing when to feed her, knowing when she needs to sleep, there's this sort of sense of this kind of extension of myself but also that she's this separate being and to pay attention to kind of um, not what I, my anxiety or what I want from her, um, but what she needs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, she's lucky to have you. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's beautiful. I, you know, I'm, I'm a bit, as, as Sina knows, I'm a bit of an acronym addict. So the acronym I like to use for what you're asking about, Simone, is that the... Um, it's the part we play in close relationships, so P-A-R-T. So P is presence, A is attunement, and then there's the R and the T, which we can get to, but, but the presence is like a state of a receptive mind. The attunement is a little different. It requires presence, it's absolutely true, but it's different in that, at least the way I use that word for, for looking at attachment studies, it's the way a parent is focusing their attention on the inner world of the child. So for example, some parents um, focus on just the behaviors that are seen by the eyes, right? The physical manifestation as, as action, right? In the world. And they're really attentive to behavior and they have lots of ideas of what the proper behavior would be or how to reinforce positive behaviors and try to decrease negative behaviors, all that stuff. Um, but they miss the mind of the child. If the mind is a word used for the feelings and thoughts and perceptions and memories and meanings and beliefs and attitudes and hopes and dreams and longings, all of that under the term mind with the notion that those are all subjectively felt uh, experiences, they're very real, but they're, they're in the inner world of the child. So a parent who's attuned goes beyond the eyesight where you see behavior and uses something that I like the word mindsight to actually see the subjective experience of the child and not only attend to it, but to respect it, you know, and, and that's what, it, for me, that's what attunement is. You need to be present to be attuned, sure, but you can be present and not attuned. You know, you could, you could not have learned that because that's another skill. Presence is a learnable skill. Attunement is a learnable skill. 
So if you didn't have that as a kid, you may just innately have presence, because some people do, but you had no idea that you could tune into the inner life of another person. And so then you're, you're deficient in having developed that skill, but that doesn't mean you yourself are deficient. It means, you know, you never got exposed to a tricycle, so you didn't know how to ride a tricycle. Now you're learning how to ride a trike. It's a skill. So attunement is a skill, and, um, and you need presence to have it, but it's different from presence. It's a focus of attention rather than an open awareness. It's a focus of attention on the inner experience of, of, of and you could say, someone else. So that would be interpersonal attunement. But mindful awareness, for example, is a form of internal attunement. So, you know, when I was first exposed to the world of mindfulness, I was already, you know, an attachment researcher, and I was really fascinated to learn about this thousands of year old practice. And to me, through the bias of my own training, I see mindfulness as simply attunement that you learn interpersonally turned inward. Hmm. Hmm. That's that. beautiful, yeah. yeah. And how do you help parents develop attunement? What, you know, is there for people, I mean, a lot of people are really misattuned. They're dysregulated they inside, you know, there's, they had lived chaotic lives. I wonder how you help people, how you help parents get, get attuned. And I think especially about as a parent, you know, I've heard parents, clients that I have in therapy talk about how sometimes their child brings out like more agitation and distress than anybody else can like they're so surprised by kind of who they become with their with their child which is can be completely misattuned well see now i'm gonna say something but i'm gonna say it with a lot of love and um and understanding this is hard but when rich uh, your dad when rich simon called me the first time it was back in 2002 20 years ago and he called and said, hey, you don't know who I am. Uh, and I didn't know who he was because uh, I was I'm on the West Coast and the, the psychotherapy networker wasn't so big of the West. And he said, but, you know, I've heard, you know, something about the brain and therapy and stuff. Uh, I don't know anything about that. Could you tell me about it? And I was actually driving to pick up my son from camp. So it was a long drive. It was like a three hour drive. So we had this long, like three hour talk. And and he was like, oh my God, you have to come, you know, give the keynote address and we'll do an article on this. I said, okay, I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds good, it sounds like it'll be fun. So that began, you know, uh, what I tried to translate for, for your dad was, um, in terms of your wonderful question, you know, that attunement requires that, for me anyway, as a, as a clinician, that I understand, you know, what's the mechanism of attunement for the individual. So then you could say, well, it means being present and focusing your attention. That's all beautiful. And it also is helpful as a clinician or educator, or even a parent, to understand, you know, what happens in the body, including the brain and the head. But so, so this is where, you know, um, back then, this was now the beginning of the new millennium, you know, it had already been the case in the decade of the brain that neuroscientists were saying, stop talking about the left and right side of the brain. They're really not that different. And, and those very cautious statements were understandable because people were making outrageous and wrong generalizations. But if you knew the research, which unfortunately I did, um, 
there's a huge difference between the left and right side of the brain. And even though they said, don't talk about it, I didn't stop talking about it. Uh, I'd written a book about it, you know, The Developing Mind. And even though these cautions said, stop talking about it, I said, I'm not going to stop because it's what the science says. So to put it very directly, energy flow streams through your body and the nonverbal signals that you pick up as energy flow patterns in terms of eye contact and facial expression and the tone of your voice, your posture, your gestures, the timing <laughs> like that, uh, and the intensity of what you say, you know, all those things, there's seven basic like ingredients to nonverbal communication. They are essentially perceived only by a right mode. So we'll call it mode rather than right side, but it's dominant on the right side of the brain. The left side of the brain doesn't know what to do with those signals. It just doesn't see any meaning in them, you know, but the right side does. So the right side both takes them in and it sends them out. So that's a really interesting difference, right and left. The second thing to know is that, and this, this is why I'm so puzzled that neuroscientists say there's no difference, there's huge difference. The interiority of the body, that is the signals of your muscles and bones, your heart, your lungs, your intestines, literally internal signals of the body. We perceive them through something called intero for interior, perception, perception. You make a map of all those interior signals only in the right side of your brain. And I'm not talking about the skin on the outside of the body because that crosses over. You know, your left skin picks, is deposited in your right, a different part of the brain for the perception of touch. Yes, that crosses over and it's on both sides of the brain. But the interior of the body is essentially a right-sided thing. So now you have the nonverbal signals right side, the feelings in your body right side, and then you look at this whole system of neurons that um, a, a colleague of ours discovered in monkeys, another colleague of mine um, uh, found them in the human brain in literally open skull surgery. Um, you know, uh, I was with him the morning they analyzed the data and he's like, we had to peel them off the ceiling because they found a huge number of actual neurons in a living human brain had these properties where they were perceiving the internal state of intention and responding only when an act that they were visualizing had an intention behind it. And so basically it's what we think is one of the neural mechanisms of what we're saying, attunement, where you're feeling the intentionality. Intention is a mental state, right? Anyway, these are called mirror neurons, the mirror neuron system. Some neuroscientists think they don't exist. Some people say, oh, you're so trendy, you're talking about mirror neurons. But if you talk to the scientists and look at their research data, these properties where you're mirroring perception and action in a single neuron, that, and these single kinds of neurons are in a system called the mirror neuron system. Anyway, I say all that because it, it gives us the inner mechanism to say the body is like an antenna. And through the right hemisphere, you soak in these nonverbal signals of others. Your own body starts to do something called um, uh, state simulation. You have two things that the mirror neuron system does. It simulates the state it's perceiving and it imitates the behavior it's perceiving. So behavioral imitation, state simulation. What does simulation mean? It means I'm gonna create in my body like a heaviness in my chest. If you're sad, I'm gonna have heaviness in my chest. 
and a, and a, a feeling in my gut, literally in my body, not just being metaphorical. I feel it in my body. It comes up through this area called lamina one, this first layer of the spinal cord, and up through also the, the vagus nerve, but then it's gonna to come to an area called the insula, which takes it up primarily to my right hemisphere. And it deposits it in a place that I could actually, if I'm not careful, uh, I might just say that I'm sad. But instead I go, well, hold on, hold on. I'm feeling a heaviness in my chest, but, but look at these guys, oh, they're sad. And so I'm tuning into their sadness because my body's like an antenna. This is a teachable skill. Interoception, we've shown this, my colleagues have shown this at UCLA. You can teach people to develop interoception. You can actually grow the insula. And once you grow it, you can show they have more empathy and they have more of the ability to not only be aware of emotions in general inside of them and in other people, but they can actually regulate them more effectively. It's a learnable skill. So you can do interoceptive exercises that allow a parent, for example, to you know, fine tune their antenna. And you know they may have had difficult times in their own childhood, which is a fascinating thing why someone wouldn't be able to do this, but they can overcome their adaptations like to not feel my feelings or you know, like in Mindsight, I have a case of a guy in his 90s who had no like introceptive ability. His whole life he said, when people said, how do you feel, you know, I call him Stuart in the book, how do you feel Stuart? He goes, I don't know what they're talking about. What does that mean, how do you feel? What a ridiculous question. He was such a left brain dude. He was a lawyer. You would not want to be on the other side against this guy. He would know every fact, he would know every rule, he would know every law and he would rip your head off and he would do it without any kind of emotion and it would be terrifying. That's what he was known as in Los Angeles. And then when he, yeah, when he became my patient, it was like, oh my God, because he was saying what an idiot I was. And I was, I think I even think it did a thing for Rich about, um, about him in one of those, uh, those uh, what are they called? Those storytelling nights we used to do. Um, I think I talked about Stuart. Yeah, but so I, I say this because even in his 90s, he didn't have the ability to develop attunement. And then his wife called me after he was in therapy for a little while. And she said, what did you do to him? Did you like give him a brain transplant? He's like a different person. I've been with him like over 60 years and like he's a different guy. And so I, we can assume that was true. I mean, we didn't do a brain scan, but you know, so that's why I feel very excited and confident about the issue of neuroplasticity. That if Stuart in his 90s could develop so much attunement. I mean, it like, it's true that his wife is not used to it. She had so accommodated to a guy who was just a left mode guy and she was happy about it, but it's like, well, like, oh my God, who's this guy in my bed now? You know, so um, anyway, it was very, it was very cool to experience that. That's, That's a very good. hopeful message. I know, it's a good, good well, story. Well, this is the thing. Yeah, the message is when you learn about neuroplasticity, you know, the brain's change response to experience. And then whether you're an educator or a therapist or even just a parent listening to us, then you go, okay, where attention goes, neural firing flows and neural connection grows. It's, it's that simple. Where attention goes is what the mind can do or in a relationship you can help someone guide their attention that way, like in therapy or education. Where attention goes, neural firing flows. So you don't have to like do brain surgery, 
But in a way, attention is the scalpel because you are now, maybe it's not the scalpel, maybe it's like the uh, constructor or whatever, you are now building new networks that didn't exist before. So you are changing the structure of the brain in that scalpel sense. Um, so where attention goes, neural firing flows. And here's the amazing thing. If you can get neurons to fire repeatedly, they activate genes and get neurons to grow together, make synaptic connections, or lay down a sheath called myelin, which makes them uh, more coordinated, balanced, and faster. And so a skill is based on myelin, the production of myelin. So basically, after around six to eight weeks, with the proper setting, you can get a person to develop that, that skill. And I remember with Stuart, there was like this two to three month Utsi period. He didn't know what was going on. Something was changing. He was like having trouble sleeping and all this kind of stuff. And then bam, he came up with these like skills that then spontaneously started to reinforce each other because now if we could have gotten in his brain, I'll bet you we would have shown the insula grew because I was doing these um, interoceptive exercises that I can teach you how to do. And I also write hemisphere exercises. And, um, and he told me I was an idiot when we started it. You know, he said, this is really stupid. What we were doing like sort of miming stuff, you know, emotions and having him imitate my nonverbal communication and, you know, all this stuff that for a lawyer who like rips people apart with his words, I, and I wouldn't let him use words. No words, it's all like embodied, you know? So because the body's an antenna, you can cultivate the antenna and develop attunement. Mm. That's lovely. Yeah. So what, what is the benefit of attunement for children? Like once you help these parents cultivate this skill and they are attuning to their children and they're able to kind of cultivate this empathy, what, what's the effect on a child who has an attuned parent? That's the R. There's the R. The resonance. Resonance. So when a child has a parent who's learned to be present for them and then next step attunes to them, focuses on the inner life of the child, then I, there's no better way to say it than a patient of mine who I, I know her name, I can see her in front of me. When I'm, it was my first long-term patient. She got better and I had no idea why because I didn't do anything my supervisors told me to do because what they said to do didn't make any sense to me. So I just didn't do it. So I let my patient sort of guide the way in her treatment. And um, anyway, so... <laughs> When she was done with her, her therapy, and she was a graduate student going on to do postdoc work somewhere else. Um, so I said, you know, uh, and I made this up, but I didn't tell her I was making it. I said, you know, at UCLA, we always do exit interviews, which we didn't do, but I, she goes, oh my God, that's such a great idea. I said, yes, UCLA has these great ideas. And she goes, what's an exit interview? Uh, I said, well, we talk about what the therapy was like and what was the most effective. She goes, oh, that's great. She goes, you know exactly what was effective. And I said, yes, I know, I know exactly, but how would you, how would you word it? I had no idea what she was going to say. And then she paused, she looked me right in the eyes, I, I can feel it like it was yesterday. And she says, never before in my life have I ever had the experience of feeling felt by you. And I went, oh my gosh, feeling felt is what resonance does. You know, when you're present and attuned, then what happens, resonance is where, let, let's talk about the parent-child relationship. You allow your body to act like an antenna, so you feel your child's feelings, but you remain differentiated, but you're linked. So that's really important because you don't become your child, but you feel your child's feelings. So the child's experience of that 
is, like my patient said, to feel felt. So you, you go from being only a me to also a we. Mm. It's joining. You're no longer alone in life. You used to be in your mother's womb, right? At one with the uterus. Then you come out and it's like really weird, right? You get hungry when you're never hungry before. You have to breathe, you never had to breathe before. You get cold, you were never cold before. There's all these things that for all those basic needs, you need your parent. So this is like literally a matter of life and death, but there's also the existential issue that used to be at one in that womb, and now you're out here on your own. So when a parent is present, attuned, and resonates with you, you feel felt, and you're now a we. And that's everything. Mm, yeah, And I love that you distinguish between the boundary of the parent and child, because I have so many patients that had parents who could empathize but then would get so distressed by their their child's distress that the child ended up needing to take care of the parent and learn that if I'm upset, it means turning to a parent and then taking care of them. And so yeah. I think that distinction, right, there's, there's both learning how to empathize, but also learning to stay connected to the self that mm-hmm. I think is so important in what you're saying. Well, that is such a crucial issue and in part, that's maybe why some parents don't do it because they know they're going to get fused with their child and, and the differentiation will disappear in that fusion. And then the child will get confused in your fusion, right? Because who am I and who's my parent? All It all gets weird. And that's, that's a form of insecure attachment, or I like to call it non-secure, because it's not about the, the child being insecure. It's about a relationship not having had security and people misinterpret the word insecure as a feature of the child, but it's not. It's a relationship statement. So to avoid all that, I just call it non-secure. Anyway, so so in ambivalent attachment, which is about 15% of the non-clinical population, they've had this experience of intrusion of the emotional state of the parent into their own, and it gets confusing um, for exactly the reason you're, you're powerfully pointing out. And this is where the overall concept of integration, which is a balance of differentiation on the one hand and linkage on the other, to me is so helpful to understand well-being because in a parent-child relationship, when it's integrated, you develop secure attachment. What that means is I can tune into my child and be present without becoming my child. So resonance is not the same as mirroring. Resonance, like think about a guitar strings on, you know, if you play a guitar, you, you hit the high E you know, the low E is going to resonate, but it's not going to become the other string. So that's the way to think about it. That's what harmony is based on differentiation and linkage. You don't, you don't have everything mushed together like blending. It's not, it's not becoming homogenous. It's becoming part of a, an integrated whole, which is very different from blending. You know, and so that's, you know, that's the resonance piece. And the T that the child also experiences in addition to feeling felt is trust. They trust that I can be my inner self, share that in a communication, and you don't get fused with me, and I don't get confused. I can feel like I'm a part of a we without losing me. And I trust in that. There's lots of ways of describing that trust, but it's a physiological state of receptivity that's open, it's connecting, it's um, Steve Porges might call it the social engagement system is turned on. 
the Gottmans have written about trust. Um, you know, trust is in many ways that Peter Fonagy is, he's, I'm just mentioning all these researchers, but Peter Fonagy has a great phrase that I think is really powerful called epistemic trust. Uh, epistemology is how we come to know what we know. So in addition to these presence, attunement, resonance experiences, when we talk and <clears throat> create narratives about the nature of reality, if it's consistent with reality, we call that epistemic trust. But for a lot of people who've gone through abuse or neglect, there's a violation of epistemic trust. So even the way the parent is um, presenting what the world is like, there's something very wrong. And you just feel like something's really wrong here. And you, it's often hard to pinpoint it. But in therapy, that will often come up later. Like, wow, your parents were presenting a world like this, but actually that was a very distorted view of reality. We invite you to spend the next few moments to just listen. Brought to you by Non, spelled N-O-N, the sound meditation app for iPhone, where no two sessions are alike. So one phase of childhood that can be particularly difficult for parents, actually would be adolescence, the teenage years, where there is a lot of differentiation, individuation that occurs um, where, you know, the adolescent is kind of moving from the family, from the nest into the, into the world. And there can be a lot of experiences of loss for parents, a lot of kind of like trying to hold on, a lot of um, conflict that can emerge. I wonder, from your perspective, what is it that's so difficult for parents about the adolescent period? Yeah, well, it's a great question. You know, when my kids were going through adolescence, they're now young adults, but, you know, um, I found that what I had been taught in pediatrics when I was a pediatrician and what I had been taught in adolescent psychiatry were so wrong. They were filled with myths that were wrong. Uh, and that was confirmed also now that I was hanging out with my kids' parents and they were saying things that they had heard from their clinicians taking care of their kids about the nature of adolescence and everyone was freaking out about it. So some of the myths, I think, create their own difficulties. Like for example, adolescence is a horrible period of time. You just have to race through and get through and hope you make through it alive. That is absurd. But if you believe that as an adolescent or an adult, it will create its own worst nightmare. 
Um, the other thing is, um, oh my God, adolescence is a period where hormones are raging out of control and it's just a nightmare. Well, hormones don't rage. They rise, sure, and that changes all sorts of things. But if you believe there was a chemical, like a hormone, that was gonna rage out of control in your kid, you'd freak out too. You know, my God, like, a, you know, invasion of the body snatchers. It's totally wrong. You know, when I was, yeah, it's scary. And when I was finishing the book called Brainstorm, I remember going for a hike and uh, I just happened to be hiking and then I ran into two pediatric endocrinologists, right? Just on the hike as life would have it. I was, I was hiking in between editing this final part of the book. I said, oh my God, this is perfect. Is there anything, I'm saying in the book, there's nothing called a raging hormone, you know, that everyone's talking about. Uh, am I right? They go, you're absolutely right. There is no such thing as a raging hormone. So anyway, it was very exciting to get that from these academic endocrinologists. So, so that's the second thing. The third thing is, you know, people see um, this period uh, as a period when the individual, the adolescent, loses their mind. They go nuts. And you'll hear even adolescent psychiatrists make the most disparaging comments and these really insulting jokes about the adolescent, you know, and, and I, I won't even say them here, but they're, you know, they're so offensive. And, and when they're said by a clinician, um, it's just like double, double painful, doubly painful. So, so here's what I would tell you that, that uh, when you look in the research on adolescence, you discover a couple things. Number one, uh, a old student of mine, now colleague, Barbara Addison Horowitz, and her colleague wrote a beautiful book um, called Wildhood, which is um, this academic review in, written in this beautifully accessible way about adolescence in non-human species. So, so all sorts of animals, including lobsters, you know, have an adolescent period. Okay, so it isn't just that we in modern times have made up this period of between childhood and adulthood. It actually is a very real animal thing. So what is this thing? Well, you can first define it as a necessary developmental period that goes between childhood dependency and adult responsibility. And it's not just, oh, too bad, we have a transition, as some parents say, put these kids in a freezer and let them come out when they're done. No, it's actually an incredibly fantastic period of time. Uh, as Lawrence Steinberg uh, wrote, after a brainstorm, he wrote this beautiful book, he's one of the world's experts in adolescent brain development, um, The Age of Opportunity for Educators to Read. Um, and we came to the, what was great is we came to the exact same conclusions even though we did it independently. So it was like fantastic to, to, find, to meet him. Um, and what, basically what the idea is that, and I, here's an acronym for you, there are remodeling changes in the adolescent brain. So the first thing that we, is new is that the brain in the first dozen years of life or so is making new connections based on what it's learning. So it's soaking in like a sponge. What is the world like? But then starting around pre-adolescence and let's just use the word, tw the number 12 is just a slight orientation, but culture can determine the timing of the onset of adolescence. It, between 12 and mid to late 20s is the adolescent period. So it's not the same as teenage years. And it's not the same as puberty, by the way. The onset of adolescence 
can happen before puberty, it can usually happens around the time of puberty, or it can happen after puberty. Puberty is the development of sexual maturation. So it's not the same as that. It's a remodeling of the brain where the brain has accumulated all these connections among these neurons, and then it starts to kill them off on a use it or lose it basis where stress increases that what's called pruning, the parcellation or the, the loss of connections and even some neurons get lost. And when I teach in middle school and high school and I tell the kids this, they kind of freak out. They go, oh my God, oh my God. I said, but the good news is where attention goes, neural firing flows and neural connection grows. It's up to you which, which connections you want to keep. So if you just want to do video games all day long, you're going to have really good connections for your, for your hand that's controlling the mouse. Go for it. I said, it's your choice. I said, but if you want to have other things like social skills, like writing in a journal, writing poetry, reflecting on things, learning a musical instrument, learning a foreign language, you can do that too. But hey, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You know, you're an adolescent. And so part of your job is to push away from adults. I get that. So I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I'm going to give you information and you make a decision. So, so this is what Brain, Brainstorm was a book I wrote for adolescents themselves to read. You know, and so it, it, the acronym in that book still is true based on the science. It's the word essence. So you say, what's the essence of adolescence that turns your question that makes it so challenging for parents? The first is the emotional spark. And that's basically a kind of passion that adolescents have. And a lot of adults, as I said in one high school, I said, why do you think adults are kind of, um, you know, acting the way they are? And, and one of the kids in the back, this is a big gym and, he, and he's in the bleachers. He raises his hand. I have an idea. I said, what's your idea? He goes, you know, if we have an emotional spark and, and that the SE is social engagement and we have all these connections with other people and we have the courage that the N is novelty seeking and the CE is creative exploration. He goes, we have got all this imagination going for us and they've lost all that stuff, which a lot of adults have. They've lost their essence. Emotional spark is a passion, you know, and the social engagements are relationships with each other, which are so important to adolescents. And novelty seeking is the courage to try something new and take a chance. Adults often have lost that. And CE is creative explorations, having an imagination to think about not just how the world is, but how the world could be and maybe even how it should be. So if you take the essence and you see how these are all mediated in the brain, but forget the brain for a moment, but the remodeling of that brain creates this essence. And the research shows that if you as an adult hold on to your adolescent essence, you'll have a much more flourishing life. So when people say, oh, they say, oh, adolescence is a horrible period, get through it as fast as possible. What I say, and this is what Steinberg uh, came up with the exact same conclusion. No, it's the opposite. You hold on to your adolescent essence and you take on adult responsibility. So it's not you're just like doing adolescent things but you hold on to this essence, you know, you're going to have a great life. So, so, so the kid says, maybe the adults are angry at us because we have what they've lost yeah. and they know it. Yeah. And, Makes and sense. everyone goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's joie de vivre. Right. Exactly. Well, think about going to a restaurant, right? You're with a bunch of adult friends and then there's a table full of adolescents. Like who's having more fun? Who's laughing? Who's crying? Who's, you know, getting hugs? 
you know, you want to go over to that table if you still have your essence going. And if you don't, you'll feel like they're just a pain, right? So I think that kid in the back row of the bleachers, I think he was right on the money. And uh, so the good news is you say to adults who are hearing this, you say, look, you know, it's never too late to get your essence back. The adolescence can be inspiring to adults. Absolutely. In fact, I think the future of life on Earth depends on the inspiration of adolescence. I think Greta Thunberg is showing that directly. You know, like adults, I mean, basically, and you know, there's a sad story, but you know, there were a number of suicides in a high school in the Silicon Valley, and they asked me to come up and do an intervention. So I went there and the kids made a video of my intervention and then they gave it to me to put up. So you can go to our website, you know, drdansiegel.com, go to videos and you can just watch this two hour meeting I had with the parents, the teachers, the administrators and the kids all in one room. So you'll see the back of their head. So it's confidential. Um, and you'll see the front of my head. You know, So it's not confidential. Um, but you'll see me talk about the essence. But then basically parents are freaking out because these are the people who run Silicon Valley companies, send their kids to this school, and they're jumping the fence to jump in front of the train that goes from San Francisco to San Jose. Right, I heard And then this. two more kids just killed themselves right before I went to that intervention. Oh, so it was, and, yeah. and the mother of one of the kids who just suicided was in that room. Mm-hmm. So it's a really serious meeting. Uh, and so it's heavy, so it's not like light watching, but you'll see me appeal to them for, with exactly what we're talking about, saying, you know, if you are trying to guarantee a kind of certainty about what your adolescents going to have when they launch out of your home and into this really volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world, this VUCA world is the acronym for that, that other people use that I think is really useful. You know, you try to grab onto certainty saying, let's get really the best grades you can, get the best scores you can, get into the hardest college to get into that you can. All these things have an illusion of certainty that in Brooklyn, if you go, if you go to the Brooklyn Public Library, um, Rashid, the, the artist, has a quote there that says, um, having abandoned the flimsy fantasy of certainty, I decided to wander. Mm. And that flimsy fantasy of certainty, I think, is what a parent feels. I mean, you have very young kids, but as they get older, you'll see every cell in your body as a parent wants to protect that little kid. And then when they're three and they're going off to preschool, you want to protect them. And then they're in elementary school, you want to protect them. Now they're in middle school and high school, and you still want to protect them. And even though my kids are adults, I still want to protect them. I mean, everything I do for, you know, climate change and racism and against racism and so trying to promote social justice. You know, I'm thinking, how do I protect the kids of the world, the people of the world? You know, but that protective instinct, where do you put all that energy when a world is really very unpredictable and kind of terrifying? Well, you want to grab onto something that has this fantasy of certainty, like, Okay, get good grades, everything will be fine, and you'll be safe if you get good grades, you know. Mm. It's not true, but at least it's a number, like you got a, you got a B plus, you got an A or whatever, I mean. So, so parents unintentionally hold this flimsy fantasy of certainty. So one of the moms in that meeting, she raised her hand, she goes, well, what do you want me to do now then? And it was really late, the meeting went way over. I said, well, it's almost 10 o'clock, and 
your kids are given way too much homework. There's no research that shows that doing over an hour of work at home a day has any benefit at all. And they're losing sleep because you're having them do all these activities, they don't have time, they're staying up till midnight, till one, till two, and then they're getting up at six or seven. I said, so sleep is the number one thing to keep their brains healthy. So when you go home, here's what you're gonna do to starting now. You're gonna go home and you say, sweetheart, I love you. Oh, thanks, mom. And then you're gonna say, go to bed, and they're gonna say, I didn't finish my homework. You say, who cares about that? Your sleep is so much more important than homework. You'll think more clearly, you'll feel better, you'll pay attention more, you'll remember better. Um, go to sleep, please. I love you. But my homework, my homework. Don't worry about your homework. Mm. That, and I said to this mom, I said that, and she goes, well, what if she doesn't get into Yale or something? She didn't say that, but you can see that in her voice. And I said, so what? You know, these kids who are literally across the street from Stanford University, you know, they don't get in, so they jump from the train. That's the metaphor. That's not the actuality of it. But the feeling is like, oh, my God, I have to get into X, Y, or Z, or my life is, you know, over. So I may as well just get it over now by jumping in front of the train. At least I can be empowered to do that. That's the sad thing about suicide. Um, so that's what I said to the mom. And I said, you know, it, it's not that any parent is causing a kid to kill themselves. But you can create an environment at home that's full of presence, attunement, resonance, and trust. And a trust that life will be okay. And that it's about our relationships with each other and really doing things together for the greater good rather than worrying about any individual accomplishment. Mm, that's such an important message. And, and I really appreciate, I mean, kind of a lot of what I hear you saying too is, is learning as a parent how to regulate yourself. And during adolescence, there's a lot of projections that we put on teens. There's a lot of worries because they're taking more risks. There's this agency that they're developing. So there's a lot of anxiety. So like presence and attunement is, is kind of calming those nerves. But I, I am also curious about how specifically with, with teens um, to show up with presence and attunement in a way that also doesn't impose um, or, or um, violate any of the boundaries that also feels really important as a teenager too. Yeah, well, you're naming a really important question. And I mean, let's just quote the research just to start with. This is not a happy finding. But even though the adolescent period, like between 12 and the mid to late 20s, um, your body is stronger and more capable of handling all sorts of assaults on it than at any other time in life, actually. Even though that's the case, you are two to three times as likely to have a serious injury, including dying by something that was caused by an adolescent. Wow. So, so that's not a parental myth. When parents say, oh, I'm afraid there's more danger. Yeah, there's definitely more danger. So it's really, really a hard issue to address your question. You know, how do you set the limits and say this limit is necessary? And I'll give you just two stories. One is, you know, the uh, beautiful book, you know, uh, Wild, Wildhood. So there's childhood and adulthood, and they made up this term wildhood for adolescence, which is a cool name, I think. Anyway, they talk about, you know, this finding that out in the savanna, if you're um, a gazelle, you know, when you're a little kid gazelle, you're hanging out with the other gazelles in your herd, and that's all cool. If you're an adult gazelle, you're hanging out 
with the adult gazelles, you know. But if you're an adolescent, you start hanging around with other adolescents, which is the social engagement piece. But here's what you do. You're out on the savanna, you find a pride of lions, and you run as close to them as you can, which blows the lions away, right? Like, here's our lunch coming right to us. You go really close to them, you look them in the eye, you take a big sniff, they get up and say, okay, it's on, and you run like heck. Now, kid gazelles don't do that, and adults would never do that. So why is an adolescent doing that? This is a good example of risky behavior, right? So the thought that uh, the authors write about um, is that taking a risk like that teaches you the boundaries of what danger is all about. You've chosen when to go to that line. You see what they look like. You get a whiff. You actually learn what they smell like because now you see who's there. And you were controlling that whole thing. And you took off. Right? And obviously it's an evolutionary thing, so it, there must be a benefit because they keep on doing it. Um, but it's that gazelle that will be more likely to survive than the one who's just hanging out with the herd and doesn't know what a lion is. Well, they're going to be wandering around and not know what the smell is, not know what the sound is, not know what they look like, and they're going to get eaten. So, so what I say to parents, and it's not easy, is, you know, and, and, and the authors of that wonderful book say it, actually they said in their earlier book called Zubiquity, they said the only thing uh, more dangerous than taking these risks that adolescents take is to not take them. Because mm. it really incapacitates their movement into adulthood. Now you take a deep breath and you say, yeah, but those gazelles were not driving cars while intoxicated. You know, they weren't doing all sorts of, you know, really dangerous things. Um, uh, so it's true. So it's like, a, it's a balancing act. The other story I'll just tell is, you know, uh, a patient I have, lit, you know, this is not a made up story, this is a true story. He comes to me and he goes, I'm really agitated. I said, what are you agitated about? He goes, this weekend, you know, three of my friends died in a car accident. And my parents said that, you know, after midnight, I need to come home for the party because there's nothing ever good happens after midnight. And I listened to them, so I got a ride home at midnight. And I was supposed to be in that car that left at 2 a.m. And I was going to be in the passenger front seat, and I would be dead now if I didn't listen to my parents. Mm -hmm. And I, this morning, I was coming back from a hike, and I actually drove by that the corner where those three kids died. Um, you know, and yeah, so when, when do you say, oh, I'm being too rigid for my 17-year-old to say, you should learn to be in, out in parties or, you know, whatever, or do I give them a rule, you know, at midnight you come home, no questions asked, you know, come home, get a cab, we'll pick you up, whatever. Um, so, especially when you add drugs and alcohol to the situation where the reasoning brain is shut off with alcohol. So then, then you've got this really difficult thing where a kid is already having, you know, this is shift in both reasoning, there's something called hyper-rational thinking, which sounds counterintuitive, but it's basically where you say, 
look, there's only a 40% chance of something bad happening. So if I really ask the question, what's the most likely outcome of driving 100 miles an hour? Well, 60% is greater than 40, so the most likely thing is it'll be really fun and exciting to drive 100 miles an hour. So I'm gonna do it. That's called hyper-rational thinking. So adolescents actually overestimate the risk of danger. Their brain in its hyper-rational mode is just discounting the negative side. So a teacher of mine, my favorite, one of my favorite teachers, was killed by an adolescent driving 100 miles an hour on a surface street. And two months earlier, he crashed his car, totaled it, and his parents just got him another sports car. Oh, God. Yeah. Right. And then he died. I was also driving right past where he died today. So, you know, these things are really serious. And part of why I wrote Brainstorm was, you know, we, we need to give kids an internal compass so they themselves can say, you know, I have hyper-rational thinking. You know, I've got this other thing, which is my dopamine of the reward system is, you know, the baseline levels are probably lower, but certainly the release levels are higher. One of the biggest things to release dopamine, which is your reward neurotransmitter, is novelty. So if I go 100 miles an hour, that's gonna be so new. And then also, if my friends are gonna hear about it or if they're watching when I do it, then I'm really more likely to do it. The research is clear about that. So then, you know, if you teach kids this and have them look to their gut and look to their heart, this internal compass, hopefully that will be an internal feeling where they'll say, you know, I, I think I should do it, but my heart says no. And my gut says no, because you have three brains, you know. So let me check in with each of my brains and hopefully the vote is two to one and I don't drive 100 miles an hour my teacher would still be alive today. Mm -hmm. It's so regulating for adolescents to understand what it is that's going on on the inside. Oh my God, I mean, totally. I mean, I, I, a friend of mine is a journalist and she was reading Brainstorm on a plane when it first came, not when it first came out, like when the paperback came out. And a kid is right across, an adolescent is across the aisle from her. And he leans over and she go, he goes, you know that book? And she goes, yeah, do you know this book? She, he goes, that book saved my life. She goes, well, what happened? And then he wrote a note to me on the plane. And basically what he said was, he thought he was insane. He read Brainstorm to understand all these different things about remodeling and the different things. And he, finally he understood he wasn't insane. He was just having this shift in how he was thinking compared to how he used to think. So he wasn't losing his mind. His mind was reorganizing itself. And there are periods of disorganization and reorganization. And, and then once he understood that, he came to, a, and there's mechanisms in the book that teach you how to develop this internal compass, develop presence, you know, with this thing called the wheel of awareness and all sorts of stuff. So it was very sweet. So exactly what you're saying. He said that it was like a life changer to do that. So as we're coming to an end of the interview, um, we usually ask people, is there anything that's inspiring you these days? Anything you're reading or watching or listening to that you would recommend to our listeners? Gosh, you know, there's um, the thing that is really inspiring me lately is a lot of indigenous writings about how for thousands of years in indigenous cultures, uh, like the Aboriginal folks in Australia or the native uh, peoples of North America, particularly there's a, there's a book called um, Sand Talk by Tyson Yunkaporta, uh, and also a book called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. 
And when you take those two books together, it's an incredible dive into what's called indigeneity, that, that is independent indigenous cultures come up with the same conclusion that the self is the system, you know, that, that in our Western-oriented, but let's just call it modern culture, we use the word self to mean the individual in the body. And I think that the indigenous cultures and this indigenous wisdom has a huge amount to teach us, not only about a new way of reclaiming what the self really is, but actually when you look at issues of social justice and issues of climate change, this excessively differentiated view of what you might call a solo self, the self being separate, um, is probably about to kill us. And if we don't wake up as a culture, uh, which means in schools and organizations and governments, at home for parents, how we raise our kids, to realize, yeah, we are an internal me, but there's also a relational we with not just human beings, but with all of nature. And when you put those together, you go me plus we is we, you know, so, so um, you know, there's all sorts of groups where we can have this we experience of honoring the gifts we come with to life individually, but then coming collectively together for the greater good. And that's what I'm super excited about. And um, I'm trying to articulate this in a book called Intraconnected, um, which has been taking about three and a half years <laughs> to come into a form that it, it can be born into the world, which will come soon. Um, so yeah, so that's what I'm very excited about is if we can rethink what the self itself is in modern life, I think humanity might have a chance on redirecting how it's comporting itself on earth because the way it's going, as we see with all the things going on in this very moment, um, you know, it's not good. And so um, that's, that's what I'm really excited about. And I feel very optimistic about it and feel like we can work together to try to achieve that. Yeah, it sounds so important, especially now. I think people are feeling so alone. So this idea of we and how to cultivate that is huge. Yeah, So absolutely. And where can people find your work, your books? Um, is you know, you can go um, to the website drdansiegel.com and there's a linking website, mindsightinstitute.com, M-I-N-D-S-I-G-H-T, Mindsight Institute. Um, those would be the best places to, you know, get all sorts of resources that you can watch, including that video of the talk for parents um, and a bunch of parenting stuff there. And there's the books you can get wherever you get books. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was great. Yeah. Lovely to so talk much. to you. Great to talk to you. Wonderful to see you again. Wonderful to meet you. And I'm looking forward to having a connection more in the future. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To stay in touch with us, sign up for our quarterly newsletter at lovelink.co, where we share our favorite articles and resources about love, sex, and relationships. Also, in future episodes, we plan on answering listener questions. So if you'd like your questions featured on our show, send us a voice memo using the Anchor app 
or send it directly to our email, info at lovelink.co. And if you have a second, truly, the best way you can help support us is to rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Just scroll to the bottom of the Lovelink show page and let us know what you think. We thank you all again so much for listening. We're truly touched you take the time out of your busy schedule for us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.